This podcast is brought to you by our very kind sponsors at Solid Point. Now I approached Solid Point to ask if they'd like to sponsor the podcast because I wanted relevant sponsors that architects and other listeners to this podcast can actually use. Now Solid Point are a surveying company providing professional surveying services using the latest technology in drone surveys, laser scanning and building information modelling. Whenever I've gone out for a quote in the past for laser scanning services, not only have they always come back with the cheapest price, but having interacted with a number of other companies, they also come back with the best Revit models from all of their survey data. They're great people to work with. So if you have a project that needs a survey doing, visit their website at solidpoint.co.uk. That's solidpoint.co.uk. And now, on with the podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Theory of Architecture. Just a quick reminder that if you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so at subscribestar.com forward slash theory of architecture. That's subscribestar.com forward slash theory of architecture. I'd really appreciate your support. Thanks a lot. My guest today is a lecturer in environmental psychology at the University of Surrey. She specializes in environmental psychology, restorative environments, place attachment, soundscapes, connectedness to nature, aesthetics, consumer behavior, user experience, and designing for well-being. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Eleanor Ratcliffe. You're welcome. Nice to talk to you. Um, and can you tell us a little bit about what your role is here at the University of Surrey and what your general level of interest and expertise is? Sure. So I'm a, a lecturer in environmental psychology, and that means I do research and teaching in this area of environmental psychology. And within that, I specialize in restorative environments. So how places and spaces can help people to recover from stress and everyday fatigue, those kinds of things. And also place attachments and how people form bonds to important or favorite places in their lives and then the, the psychological benefits that that can bring as well so that's brought me to doing a lot of research particularly this year on the value of the home that people have that the home has for people i should say yeah well i imagine there's quite a lot of flux in the in knowledge at the moment given how differently people are using their homes now yeah absolutely so kind of from the theoretical standpoint people perceive the home as somewhere where you go to be away from all of the other stresses and strains um and now you know we we have all of those work stresses and external life stresses imported into the home so it it's kind of having to take a different perspective on this this topic i think which is interesting to me as a, a researcher uh, seeing how the reality perhaps doesn't quite map to the theories we've been working from as well. Yeah, so what are the biggest upsets then in terms of those things you didn't expect coming out of COVID? Uh, in terms of people's relationships with their homes or...? Yeah, that's what I expected findings. Interesting question. Um, I guess the diversity of experience that people are having in their home, because I think for maybe the, the biggest narrative we're seeing is, you know, it's time to hunker down and, you know, try and make the best of the situation and appreciate being in your home. For some people, they're not having a good time at home. And I think maybe their stories get lost. You know, maybe they're in an unsupportive environment at home, emotionally, socially, physically. So I think it's important not to, to lose sight of that. But also that there there just isn't one narrative even if you generally speaking like being at home um i think there is no one right way to do this covid experience you know and 
in the beginning of the lockdown, it was all about baking and a run on eggs and flour and doing cozy. Exactly. All of those things are kind of cozy, hunkering down, hygge activities. Um, but as time has worn on, I think people have found that actually just being confined to your home is very psychologically taxing, not least because you're having to share the space maybe with other people or partner, spouse, children, housemates, whatever. And then if you're on your own, that's also a different challenge, you know, dealing with the, the social isolation. So I guess just the diversity of experience has been interesting to me and the fact that that's uh, maybe hard to to showcase in very quantitative survey-based research. And so through some of the qualitative research I've been doing, capturing these kinds of individual experiences, that's really highlighting to me the fact that there's no one right way to be at home at the moment. Yeah, and for people watching the show who aren't necessarily from a science background, as most architects and architect students are, What's the difference between qualitative and quantitative research? So quantitative research is primarily about numbers, so quantifying data. And that means it doesn't have to be objective. So you might use a survey, for example, but you know maybe you ask people how happy they are on a scale of 1 to 10 or something like that. That's subjective, but it's quantifying your data. You're quantifying how happy people are. Whereas qualitative research is a lot more about people's words and individual expression of how they feel. So you may interview people and ask, how happy do you feel? And often that kind of research is useful to understand why as well. So you might ask how happy people are in their home and then you want to dig it out about what makes people happy. What is it about their home? And so that's the kind of research I love doing because I love to tap more into the mechanisms behind things and it's very useful to get people's ideas about why they feel or think or behave a certain way in their own words and then of course you can go and do quantitative research and actually measure those differences but for me well the, the reason i came into psychology in the first place is because i like people's stories about the places they spend time in Mm. I always wonder how you get sample sizes for those groups of people. Who is it volunteering to, to spill their secrets about their lives to you? Well, that's it's funny you ask that because uh, I, I ran some some research. It was mixed methods, uh, so quantitative and qualitative, and this was in the the spring. And I was stunned by the amount of people who wanted to answer this fairly mundane looking online questionnaire, you know, tell me about your favorite place in, in the home. I, everyone wanted to say something. And I think because they didn't at that point really have an outlet for, you know, what was going on. I'm stuck here in my house, there's nothing else to do. Um, yeah, so getting getting participants for research can sometimes be difficult. And that's why often you have to incentivize them with cash or a voucher or you know free doodah um but sometimes there's intrinsic motivation to participate because people want to share what is on their minds um and generally speaking i think people do want to talk about their homes particularly because they're such a reflection of our identity you know they they're where we put all of our memories or personal symbols of, of who we are. It's kind of a, a physical repository for our identity. And so I think people were intrinsically motivated most of the time to, to talk about it. Mm. I remember being in being q a couple of months ago and talking to one of the guys there who said they've just had a massive upshoot in people coming in. Obviously no one's got anything else to do other than DIY mm. and, and spending time, I guess, putting more of their own identities into their environments, and I guess from your perspective as a researcher, it's probably interesting to see how they're changing their environments now. 
Yeah, well, I think there's there's something in there about not having much else to do. So if you're if you're trapped in one space, you know, okay, what can we do? It's sort of like a never-ending bank holiday of DIYing. Um, but but also to my mind, and I haven't yet backed this up with research, but here's a hypothesis. I think when people feel out of control, there can be a tendency to want to make the environment more controlled, to make it better, to improve it, to reinforce some sense of having control over your environment and your situation. So I see a lot of people doing, you know, renovations and improvements. And to me, that suggests that they're trying to kind of, you know, fluff up their nest a little bit, right? Um, but yeah, so that's something I would like to look into a, a little bit more. Um, and I don't know, just the, not even necessarily DIY, but maybe kind of creating things at home, redecorating, moving things around, not least for practical reasons, because I think people have noticed that you can only work on your laptop hunched over the kitchen table for so long before that becomes not a sustainable way of, of life. And so some people have had to realize, okay, I've got to make a little desk corner or I've got to transition to another part of the house to do my work. The first lockdown in the UK, at least, it seemed to me it was about kind of surviving. And now people are thinking, okay, if this is for the longer term, I have to actually make this a bit better for me and more livable. Mm. Why do you think, I wonder whether it will have an effect on house design in the near future, about mm. people thinking if I am going to be working from home two, three, four days a week, mm. I am going to need that little office nook or even a separate room or like a small box room as to be an office or whatever it is, mm. say, rather than being hunched over the kitchen table. Yeah. Um, and, and what kind of effect will that have on house building and that kind of thing? Because they're going to need more space effectively, aren't they? Yeah, or differently designed or configured spaces, maybe. I mean, I suppose it's not really within everyone's remit to get a bigger place, but maybe you could try to be smarter with what you have. I mean, it, 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 in one sense, it's funny for me to say these things because I, you know, I don't own a house. I've never owned a house. I, I rent and I'm quite limited in what I can do physically with my place. But I had to change my behavior in that, okay, I don't want to do my work on the sofa or my laptop because that's where I want to go after work. And like, you know, we're limited here in the diversity of experiences we can have in this room. We're like, wow, it's 5 p.m. It's time to move to the sofa. Um, so for me, it's been more of a behavioral and a spatial configurement change, but nevertheless, it is still a change. And you can extrapolate from that and say, okay, maybe if you have the resources to either move to a bigger place or remodel the, the place that you already have and make some more dedicated work from home or office space, I think that's gonna be appealing to people. Um, two close friends of mine, so they, they live together and then they, decided that they were going to you know rent out their respective properties that they own and then rent a bigger place where they would each have an office because it was really getting on top of them having to work together in the same space and not good for the relationship and stuff like that so i guess people are realizing that if this is going to be a longer term proposition there are some changes that have to be made but i am really conscious that that's that's not available to everybody so i don't want to say you must find an office you know it's just mm. you have to work with what you've got right yeah well, I did think as well about the you know the Japanese use of space and the tiny little use spaces that they use and how configurable they are mm. and how that sort of might be a good source of inspiration for western architects I guess looking for ways to use small amounts of space mm. more efficiently or like you say in different ways of 
different patterns of behavior within the same small box. This is it. So the flexibility of space, I think that's going to be key. So we have uh, a PhD student here in our group who her whole thesis is looking at flexibility of housing design and why people want flexible housing, uh, what they want it to achieve for them how they achieve flexibility, maybe not just through structure, but through furniture configuration. Um, I remember also before I came into academia, or maybe I was doing my undergraduate degree, I went to see the Riedveld Schroeder house in Utrecht. And to me, that was, it was crazy because it was a house from, when is it, the 1920s or even earlier than that? Well, I can't remember the exact date now. Yeah, but yeah, something like that. Yeah, uh, dish style. And, um, it still had this very modern feeling or, you know, something you wouldn't see normally. These walls that slide backwards and forwards and the windows that expand out. So you don't really have this perimeter. Um, and I feel like still that would be quite a bold proposition for a, for a building these days. And I loved also the anecdote about that that story that um, or that house that uh, the the woman who commissioned the design her children didn't want to admit that they lived in that house because all her, their friends were like it's so weird. Well, you only can see pictures of it on its own. They, never, they always crop out the row of classic sort of Dutch houses, oh, yeah. houses next to it that go on for the whole yeah. street and also the railway line. <laughs> you see this like distilled box thing. Yeah. Motifs of it all around the city. Yeah, I, I heard that. Yeah, the the owner didn't like it so much after there were some changes to the landscape around it. But I, I thought it was funny that that kind of flexible living was seen as a bit bit odd even then. And I think now we maybe we say we like the idea of flexible living, but it's a bit hard to actually see it in practice. Part- I've always been quite skeptical of it because it seems very fashionable, especially in the last sort of ten years, to have movable partitions and, mm. and flexible this and this folds out and that changes to reconfigure. Mm. And I always think like maybe you do that if you're having a house party, mm. but other than that, you're not going to probably not going to go to the trouble of moving walls and moving spaces around on a daily basis. Mm to reconfigure your space well yeah i mean pe- people are lazy they generally speaking want things how they want it and they don't want to be bothered with moving it around um and also the kind of the thing that comes to my mind when i think of flexible housing is an episode of Frasier where um niles gets divorced from his rich wife and he uh, has to move out of his beautiful apartment into a bedsit where the bed falls down from the wall <laughs> and he, um, he he's not really very happy about this because it, he feels that it says something bad about him and his status that he can't afford to have a bedroom where the bed is just there you know mm-hmm. um, and he's already a very status conscious character so maybe for some people there is an association of like you know if you can't have a a property where your stuff is just there what does that say about me rather than it being a a practical solution to a problem so i think there are some hurdles to to overcome there um i I suppose you could you could kind of try to reframe that like you were saying the the japanese idea of flexibility is all about the minimalism and stuff like that that's our choice though i think most of them if they didn't live in sort of a city with 20 million people or however many it is they'd probably prefer a bit more space Mm. Um, but in terms of your, your research has been around uh, recovery and restoration of psychological health. Mm. Normally, I suppose you think of the home as a restorative environment from all the other pressures of life. Mm. But now, sort of people are being forced to stay in their homes whilst being subjected, subjected to all of the normal pressures. So how has that sort of changed the role of the home as a restorative environment? 
Well, I think it it's made it less clear cut. In that, like you say, we view the home as somewhere where we go to get away from all of this stuff. I think it's forced people to try and carve out places in their home that are away from all of the other stuff. So this research I did in, in the spring, I was asking people to identify favorite places in their home during lockdown. And very often they were these kind of private spaces. So the bedroom or even the bed specifically. So people who were living in a studio, for example, it's like the bed suddenly becomes this little oasis where nothing else gets to them. Um, and some very interesting responses as well. Someone said they wanted to go just shut themselves in the bathroom and the bathroom was where they got their peace and quiet. So you, you see that people are trying to create restorative or private niches for themselves, even when they feel restricted and suddenly the home has become the place where all these other external stresses are, are coming in. Um, also looking outwards, so I noticed a trend in that people who've had access to nature or even elements of nature in their home use those as an opportunity for recovery. And there's a big body of research on the links between nature and, and stress recovery. So if people could look out of the window at the view or feel the sunlight uh, or even just, you know, tend to a house plant or something like that, it gave them broader associations about not being locked into their house or restricted in their movement. So I think there are there are things you can incorporate into the home that give give the feeling of being somewhere further away. Mm. Yeah, I always think with this, all these lockdown restrictions that it must be horrific for people who have no outdoor space at all. Mm. I'm lucky that I've got, I sort of live in the countryside and have a big garden. Mm. Um, but if you didn't have any outdoor space, that would be real or access to any. Yeah, and there's been a a really big inequality, I think, that people have become aware of. So maybe it's something that people think about less when you're free to do whatever you want to do and you can just go to the park when you like. But if that option is not so easily accessible to you, then suddenly you become aware of who has what and who doesn't have what. And some colleagues of mine here in our department are looking specifically at people's nature engagement before and during and then after the, the pandemic. And I think because of the restrictions on movement that have been kind of quite predominant this year, there's been a real change in the way people are able to get outdoors and engage with the outdoors. So if you have that nature accessible to you in and around your home, you're going to have more of this kind of psychological advantage. Mm. Uh, I'd like to ask you as someone who probably has a better knowledge of the research literature on this, in terms of the benefits of access to nature in its various forms, um, I think most people will be unsurprised that access to nature is as a positive benefit. What I'm really interested in is the difference between access to actual nature, uh, artificial nature in terms of like fake plants and things inside your house, mm. and images of nature, i.e. like big sort of murals of forests in hospitals and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Is there actually any established evidence that picks apart the relative effects of each of those? Yes, so particularly around experience of, say, images of nature versus real experience, there is some evidence to suggest that being directly in nature generates bigger, more measurable benefits in stress recovery, for example, recovery from, from fatigue, uh, potentially because of the enhanced sensory experiences. So if you have not just the visual input, but also the sounds of nature, the smells, even feeling the, the wind or touching the leaves or whatever, you're having more of this immersive experience, you're fully there. Whereas if you're just looking at a picture, it can still generate some restorative benefits, but it's less of the complete holistic experience and you're less immersed in the environment. 
there's relatively less research, say, comparing pictures of nature versus other forms of artificial nature. Uh, we know that if you see a picture of nature and then you have congruent sounds added over the top, you get stronger benefits from that because, again, the kind of the immersion is is greater. Um, but one area that's very interesting, I think, is the increased use of virtual reality because it's designed to be more immersive. And also because, and this is my perspective, it gives people a greater sense of agency in the, the simulated environment. So a picture or a, an audio recording, you can just kind of passively listen to. You can't interact with or alter the environment in any way. But with some of the virtual reality designs that are becoming more widespread, you can act upon the environment, you can engage with it. Often there's a form of narrative or storytelling to, you know, make you feel like you are somehow in the environment and of the environment. So for me, that's kind of one of the next big research questions about people's level of engagement in the environment. Because for so long in environmental psychology, we've just presented people with stimuli and kind of let them be exposed to it. That's not really how you experience the environment. You, you construct it, you're doing things in it, even if you're just walking around in it, you know, you're still having an active experience. So for me, that's a new, an interesting new avenue of research that I'm excited to, to look at. It's a very deliberate process, isn't it? Like the, the cognitive process of actually like putting on a headset and wandering around in an environment is very different to sort of just subconsciously experiencing things in your peripheral vision as you go about your daily life in the buildings and around the urban environment. Mm. So there must be sort of significant differences in just the way the brain works in terms of what you're actually consciously doing and what you're just subconsciously experiencing as you do other things. Mm. Well, I suppose part of it is motivation. So you, like you say, you make an explicit effort to have this virtual reality experience. Whereas, say, if you're just walking through the park on your way to work or something, it's maybe not an experience you think about too much, but you are still experiencing the stimuli around you. So I think maybe the differences stem from from motivation. You have to be motivated to seek out some kind of virtual reality experience in the first place. Um, we have two PhD students here doing really interesting projects on VR. Uh, one who was looking specifically at this effect of immersion. So, you know, what are the restorative or not restorative effects of different levels of immersion in the virtual environment? And then another looking at uh, the therapeutic benefits of virtual nature. So how that can be applied in a therapy setting, either with a therapist or, or for patients or clients to, to use on their own. Um, so I, I guess part of this interesting avenue of research is why people want to do this in the first place. What are they looking to, to get out of it? Because for a lot of people using virtual reality is about fun or games as well. Maybe not necessarily, ooh, I'm tired, I want to or recover. Or 3D modeling and showing your clients around their building. Ah, well, that, yeah, see, that's something I hadn't, hadn't considered. You say you have too much of a, a researcher, a psychologist. <laughs> no, it's incredibly useful for us. Like the, the difference, I think we as architects forget sometimes that most people can't read plans and sections mm. in the way that we can. Um, obviously, it's not true of everyone, but a lot of people can't. And the difference between someone looking at some lines on a piece of paper and putting them in an environment where they're actually seeing things mm. in the way they would normally see them, albeit usually at no res and not in sort of hyper-real mm. space, um, although that's improving. Like that's a, a 
completely sort of step change and difference for most people's perception. Yeah, and I think that's something great that this technology can achieve is to reduce barriers between disciplines or between professionals and, and clients. Um, because we, we have a lot of architects who come to environmental psychology, so they, they've been in practice and they want to understand more about how people experience what they're building or designing psychologically. But I, I don't know the language that they use. And often I think we're talking about the same kind of things, but we're using different terms. And then so if we can use tools to try and, you know, share each other's experiences, I think that's a really good thing. Yeah, it's always completely absurd to me that there's not, there's almost zero interaction between the architectural profession and its most relevant direct science. Mm. Like, you know, we're not even taught how to read um, scientific papers in university. Mm. Mention, I've literally nobody mentioned once environmental psychology. Really? In, in any of my university courses or in any of the offices I've worked That's in. so funny. I wonder why it is, because I know traditionally, yeah, there's been this kind of reserve between the two fields. Well, it's, it's, I think it's mostly because architecture is still considered an art, mm. or the arts, mm. um, not a science. And obviously it's both mm. artistic, but I would argue that it's probably probably more science if you actually drilled down to it. Mm. Like what most architects think of as good design, you could measure scientifically and mm. have, sort of bring about natural principles from that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we did, I think the, the interaction with environmental psychology is, from an educational perspective in architecture needs to be much more. Yeah, I mean, environmental psychology was originally called architectural psychology. But I think really? that, yeah, but that term fell out of fashion. I have no idea why. And this was back in what, the 60s or 70s? Maybe need to bring it back. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's, it's fashion. You know, you call it something and then they go, no, you've got to call it something else now. And um, one thing in environmental psychology is that it used to be a lot more about or just about psychological responses to the environment. So architecture is a big part of that, you know, wayfinding, uh, restorative environments, place attachment, all of these kinds of things. And then over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, the climate aspect or environmental behavior has become a much bigger part of it as well. So you have these kind of two sides of environmental psychology. And I guess in order to be inclusive of that, it's moved from just being architectural psychology into environmental psychology. Mm. Um, and I still feel this dichotomy, like I, I don't really know much about the science and research behind sustainable behavior and that kind of thing. Like, you know, I take tiptoes into it, but I still feel it's very much not my area. So even within environmental psychology, I think there are these differences and, you know, who's who's in and who's out and all this kind of stuff. It sounds like the classic sort of hyper-specialization of academia. And yeah, totally. Small, small <laughs> interests competing for their own theories, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the sort of VR stuff because the sort of the user experience side of environmental psychology I guess comes in a lot when mm. you're thinking about how people actually interact. I remember designing a special needs school a while back and just the level of detail that the interaction goes into of like exactly what colour tones and exactly what heights of things and contrast between like architectural elements because you had such a hypersensitive user mm. um, which you wouldn't normally get in a, in a sort of a normal building I guess. Mm. Um, so is there much research around the actual way people use buildings and spaces in terms of their psychology? Yes there is. Uh, again I suppose it's 
it's more specialised than that. It's, you know, how do people respond to signage? What's their wayfinding experience? Uh, what is their experience of soundscapes, for example? Uh, how do people respond to differently coloured rooms? Because research is always done on a, in order to be a feasible study, is always done on a very small scale, like, you know, this precise research question. Um, but, oh, sorry, my hair is falling down. <laughs> Um, what was I saying? Uh, could you repeat the question? Specific, specific research on uh, user, usability of buildings. And, yeah. Uh, so I think the research question is always a bit more specific than that. So how people respond to, say, different soundscapes or uh, different levels of lighting. And that interacts with the, what the purpose of the building is. What is it designed to do? So, for example, there's been a very interesting increase in research on hospital soundscapes, particularly because hospitals are characterized by lots of bleeps and bloops and all of these things, which is not necessarily compatible with having a relaxing or recovery-based experience. So... I think you have to drill down into the the niche of you know what the the topic is, um, but you can you can find research on all of these topics at environmental psychology conferences. Uh, so IAPS, which is the International Association of People Environment Studies, so every two years they run a conference and it's usually attended I would say two thirds by environmental psychologists and one third by architects and or other practitioners. Um, I don't, it, it, it's hard to say how much of the research in that area has then gone on, is then taken into application in building design. But certainly, depending on the, the niche you're looking at, there are a lot of people doing research on those particular areas. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I've never encountered a sort of mechanism within the architectural profession to review evidence and updates and evidence and new studies and mm. then apply those changes. Mm. So there's always a new client, there's always a, a planning application to get in or a brief to meet, but there's never any, there's no sort of R&D department within yeah. practices. Well, I think that's an interesting point maybe on the philosophy of research because generally speaking academic research is slow like you potter around with a cup of coffee well you used to anyway you don't these days um and think about things and then do a study and then write a paper and the paper takes a while to get published so this is you know years long process whereas i think in the real world people expect things to move a lot more quickly particularly because there's you know money at stake and clients and all of these kinds of things so maybe if people are observant and digging into the academic literature they might might find sources of inspiration to inform design decisions but perhaps one of the limiting factors about why academics don't work with architects more is just the different timescales we're working on and you know in academia you have this sort of intellectual freedom to noodle over ideas for for ages but people in the real world don't really have that do they mm. I guess also that because architecture is effectively a cottage industry, like there's very few large practices. Like the average size of practice in the UK is three. Mm. It's, most architects are very, very small organisations. Mm. And like so, you say, it's uh, sorry to interrupt you, but it, it requires a certain amount of prior knowledge or understanding to read these scientific papers that psychologists come out with and think, okay, what does this mean for me? What's the applied? outcome of all of this so what you know and like you say if there's three of you well 
how much time do you really have to sit there through some academics paper? Which is why I think it, the onus is on academics to do dissemination, to share what we find and to put it in a format that's useful for people like architects or whatever other discipline. You know, we can't sit here and say, oh no, no one's reading my research if you don't make the effort to put it in a format that people actually want to or can you know, make use of it. Mm, yeah, I have to say, uh, most papers I've read have not been the most easy reads in terms of no. the way they're written. No, pretty dense, hey, because they're written for other academics, you know. Yeah, well, that's part of the problem, though, isn't it? That they need to be, that's why I've always liked new scientists, because it's sort of a, a midpoint where if you're a reasonably intelligent person, you can understand it, mm. but it's not so watered down that it's just a newspaper article. Yeah. Um, and if you have that level of translation from, say, the Journal of Environmental Psychology mm. to the architect text journal or something like that mm. um, and a mixing of the two or if, if the AJ was including new papers and findings of new papers mm. which would be great um, then that sort of that passing on of information would be much smoother and people like me and other people in my profession would perhaps absorb the evidence more easily yeah so some kind of middle middleman or middle ground to share these ideas I think would be really useful mm. do, you th do you think that uh, university departments of architecture need to engage more with your department as well. I don't think architecture. Not here at Surrey, I don't think. No, no, no. Um, it, yes, certainly. I mean, to a certain extent, there there are links. So, you know, I, I collaborate and have discussions with people at UCL and the Bartlett and that kind of thing. Um, I, I guess part of it is, well, part of it is to do with teaching. So I'm aware of some architects who like to have environmental psychologists come in to give perspectives on courses and that kind of thing. I think that's that's fantastic. Um, in terms of research, I guess it's about finding that common ground. So uh, you have to have a research project where the architect and the psychologist can both bring some level of expertise into what's going on. and. As an academic, you have the pressure to, to publish, to produce publishable research, which usually has to be some kind of discrete piece of research. Like how do you make that fit with architecture? I'm not quite sure. Um, but certainly to work together maybe in a more applied sense, I think would be, be really important. Um, there's a lot more emphasis these days on interdisciplinarity. So particularly when getting getting funding. So maybe that's another avenue as well when people, when academics are applying for, for grant money to try and include architects as part of that funding bid. You know, they're the people who are going to be applying this this research. Mm. Do you ever get called in or any, anyone in your profession get called in as consultants to sort of large firms of either, I guess, house builders or construction firms or design firms? Yes. Um, here at Surrey, we've worked before with uh, an architecture firm. Well, I'm sure many more than just one architecture firm. I only started this job a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, certainly. I think environmental psychologists do very well at applied research and consultancy. So going in to offer some opinions on design or behavior change. Um, I think we're we're a bit more applied in that sense than maybe something some discipline like cognitive psychology or something so like you know and i don't know although that links a lot with behavioral science these days which is very trendy and you can nudge everyone to do everything is that academic competitiveness coming in again probably yeah. <laughs> um but you yeah, know i i think there there certainly are these these links maybe it's just not talked about enough um 
I think also there's a labeling thing because sometimes students come to me and they come to me and they ask I want I want to do environmental psychology as a career but I don't really know what jobs are out there and I have to say it's quite rare that you'll see a job for an environmental psychologist like unless you go into academia and you find a post like I don't and that's that's fantastic uh, but very often you might have to find a role where it links to environmental psychology some way so maybe um policy advice on sustainability or you know working at defra or something like that you know and also working with architects as well but it's quite rare i think in the real world that you find a job labeled environmental psychologist you kind of have to wiggle your way into it mm. and you mentioned policy there's obviously a lot going on at the moment with the government with new papers on um design guides and planning reforms and that kind of thing um I've been quite encouraged to see how much information that kind of relates to environmental psychology has been in some of those sort of best practice guides mm. kind of thing. But it's not sort of there explicitly, mm. but it is there and saying like, oh, there is evidence shows that more, saying more exposure to nature is good, mm. or do this, do this, do this. Um, is, I guess, I don't really know if I've got a question from this, but is there sort of more of a role for the actual the scientific side to come in in an advisory role to say house building policy and planning policy and sort of do, do, uh, design guide policies and that kind of thing. I think that would be excellent. I think there's not enough of that. Um, one area where you do see it, I think, is in nature experience, access to green space, because there's been a lot more interest in recent years in things like social prescribing of nature therapy and all of this kind of stuff. But maybe we need more of that in terms of design of, of buildings and, and the home. Uh, I don't think it's received nearly enough attention besides maybe kind of broad parameters like exposure to daylight or noise insulation because there are large bodies of, of research in these areas. But it's all kind of, like I was saying about these discrete areas of research, like there are people beavering away on daylight and links to mood and psychological function, and then someone beavering away on noise and its bad effects on people's health and, and mood and anxiety. But it's sort of nibbling a bit from here and nibbling a bit from there. And I think academics are rather poor at packaging all of this up and saying like, oh, here's, top 10 tips, you know, even though these are exercises I tell my students to do, we're rather poor at doing it ourselves and saying like, here we are as a, you know, academic advisory service. I mean, having said that, I'm not saying there's no one who does this. I'm just saying that maybe as a discipline, we should be more visible in how we do this. Well, I have I've often found that academics do have a habit of staying within their little academic bubble and mm. talking to each other and not sort of seeing the the wider applications of what it is that they're trying to, what they're actually researching. Mm. Even when they have quite sort of profound findings mm. that might have huge implications to a completely different profession, but just don't twig. It's uh, funny interesting to sort of say you talk to architects and they're sort of speaking a different language. Mm. And they do get that because we do speak English <laughs> sometimes. Um, but that's like a lot of your work and your colleagues' work probably applies more than you realise mm. to the kind of thing that my profession is doing. And, and we equally probably don't realise that you're doing that kind of work mm. and just how relevant it is. I mean, I do think it's getting better. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, uh, not least your podcast, but I've had a lot of inquiries from people who are interested to talk and share experiences on this this subject. So I do think that maybe there is a kind of shift or a willingness to communicate that we've not been seeing 
in recent years. I don't know why this is. I mean, maybe it's it's just the emphasis on the home this year. I don't well, know. I, I think it's two things. I think it's it's firstly the um, the increased interest in environmental health generally, as in health of the environment. People like David Attenborough, mm. like obviously climate change and biodiversity becoming more prominent, um, but also the mental health awareness. Mm. Um, and because people are a lot more concerned with with sort of mental health, with well-being, with um, generally being better off psychologically, that those sort of things have combined, and people have suddenly realised that actually environment matters in terms of sort of keeping sane, yeah, and keeping well psychologically. And that's probably what's starting to build interest, which, mm. which is encouraging, I guess, from no, both perspectives. Yeah, no, it absolutely is, and I think you're you're right in that it's all it takes is something to catch the public imagination. And I remember, I don't know, some years ago, there was a TV series about architectural design, and then it had an element of environmental psychology in there, but it wasn't calling it by its name, you know, sort of. I don't know, it just sort of had a little bit on it. Um, too yeah. Well, that's another thing. Maybe people, particularly in broadcasting, maybe there's a perception that people might be scared off by, oh, it's the men in white coats coming in sort of thing, even though it's it's nothing like that. Um, but, you yeah, know, I, I agree. I think there's there's been a, an increased willingness to talk about mental health, which is really positive in itself. But like you say, I think it's got people thinking about all the, the contributing factors of which the environment is is one of them. Yeah, I, I saw an interesting stat on, on the environmental psychology sort of article, uh, popular article the other day, which said that they estimated that environment had about a ten percent effect on your well-being, as in ten percent of your overall well-being was down to environment. Mm -hmm. And I sort of wondered where, firstly, where on earth did they get that from? And do you think that's about right? And even if you think it's about like how do you sort of measure overall well-being bring it down to a number i don't know i would have to have to look at this i suppose i mean my first question is what they mean by environment because that could be a lot of things like is it physical environment social environment and i, then... I think they meant sort of physical and aesthetic oh, okay and do you know who this was by i remember okay I'm, I'm always a little bit wary about generalized statements about, you know, 10% of well-being is to do do with this. Like, okay, but for whom and, and why? Um, although I, I am aware that these kinds of figures are very useful in, in policy. So, you know, building some kind of predictive model and saying, you know, the, the effect of the one that's always touted is sort of the effect of loneliness is, is bad for people is smoking cigarettes or something like that. So it gives a, an easy, easily quantifiable number to let people know how good or bad something is and then also how much it will cost the NHS or something like that. So it's clearly very useful from a, a policy perspective and getting people to take action on something that might need to be improved. Um, but uh, looking at that from a research standpoint, I'm like, yeah, okay, but what do you, you know, what's the, the physical environment? So, you know, so what? It could be good, it could be bad. And also it varies so much between people, doesn't it? It's, you know, say you have someone who's a, a country person stuck in a busy city environment. Well, they might not be so happy about it, but you could ask someone who's, you know, grew up in London or New York and they're thriving in the city environment. So uh, the point I'm making is that I don't think any two people experience the environment the same way. You can make some generalizations about a population, but... I'm really interested on in 
these variations in environmental experience and why that is you know is it because someone has some attachment to an environment or some positive or negative previous experience and then can we leverage those factors to try and improve experiences for other people you know maybe if we create better bonds with people's local green space they might derive better psychological benefit from them for example I guess you'd have to break it down, wouldn't you? Because the normal metrics like that come from well, somebody's taken some very large metric like death rate or rate mm. illness or something like that, and then extrapolated it into therefore you're better off, therefore you're I don't know healthier or whatever. Yeah. Which, and which is irresponsible journalism. <laughs> but nobody, I mean, it gets the, the research out there. And certainly at a large level, these kinds of numbers are very useful. So looking at things like annual population survey, where you know, you've know got national data on well-being, 250,000 people or something like that. And you can make some very nice generalizations about, you know, access to green space increases people's subjective well-being by, you know, 10% or something like that. Uh, those are the kinds of studies where you get those figures from um, and they're good for providing some kind of initial baseline like okay we know that green space or low levels of noise pollution are, are better for people. Mm. You mentioned place attachment. Mm. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what that actually means, what's the sort of, what's the general concept and then what's the sort of evidence and the scientific specifics of, of that area of study? So place attachment is the the emotional primarily, but also kind of the cognitive thinking bonds that people have with important places in their in their lives. So for many people, the the primary place of attachment is their home where they live. But a lot of place attachment literature might look at people's childhood home where they grew up. Um, you know, maybe a place that they don't have access to anymore. So dealing with issues around place loss. Uh, maybe attachment to your workplace. And it can be attachment on a bigger scale as well. So maybe attachment to your city or your nation or some other geographical region. Um, I'm interested in place attachments, A, because it links to something I'm really, I, I've looked at previously in the context of restorative environments and that's people's memories of place. So in my PhD research, I found that people had a lot of memories of elements of nature. And for them, they kind of elaborated on those memories and. Uh, might hear just a particular sound and then build up a whole world in their head based on the sound and the memories they'd had of that sound in the past. But in research subsequent to that, I found that if people uh, have positive memories associated with a particular place and those the presence of those memories then increases people's attachment to the place that sort of reinforces their bond and then they derive greater psychological benefit from the place they find it more relaxing more restorative and more pleasant to be around so for me that work was about uniting these two areas of research in environmental psychology the place attachment science kind of bonding with place and the restorative environments and experience of nature often because there hasn't been much work previously that had linked the two. So experience of, of nature as restorative or beneficial very often looks at this kind of generic experience of, you know, greenery or just somewhere green, you know, not, not anywhere special. And for me, that was kind of missing a trick because generally speaking, if people go out into a natural environment, they're going to some specific place and maybe somewhere that they have an attachment to. And through that work, I was able to show that if people have these bonds with place, they can derive greater benefits from the place they're going to. Mm. Is that sort of 
part of the general benefit of familiarity to to anything just applied to sort of environment effectively or so, is, is there something more than that familiarity is part of it because the more familiar you are with the place if you like it you tend to become more attached to it but it was an effect over and above just familiarity so if you developed this kind of emotional bond so you felt that the place was part of you part of your identity uh, and said something about you as a person uh, you perceive that place to be more restorative more beneficial mm. how does that break down in terms of scale? <coughs> excuse me so from i guess the lowest level would probably be a room especially for younger people who's where their room is mm. their home, more so than their home is up to i guess country level I and mean, we're not by to planet level yet but maybe because <laughs> uh, between those two things like is there demonstrable effects where there's a difference in how much on average people's have an attachment to country versus city versus region versus street versus individual house or whatever category attachment tends to be greater on a smaller scale so thinking about your home or maybe your local area as opposed to a city or a country or something on a bigger scale and part of that is because you're more familiar um with the, the smaller scale environments because you you can be like it's it's on a more manageable scale and therefore you know it more you feel like more of an insider um so there's that difference something that there hasn't been a huge amount of research on but i'm really interested in is attachment to specific places say within the home so this is kind of what i was getting at with this research i was doing in the spring like you know where in the home do people perceive as their favorite places and i didn't do measurement of you know differences in attachment to these different places but that would be a really a really nice next step um but so often we kind of just say the home as a favorite place but i think particularly when, like we said in the beginning, if you have all of these new different influences in the home, like, you know, work is there, the childcare is there, uh, trying to do your exercise on the floor is also there. Uh, suddenly the home is not the same as it used to be. And therefore you might have to segment it out. And so therefore in this new version of the home, where is the attachment different? Um, so that's something I hadn't really considered before this year. And I'm still, still thinking about the best way to to carry on with that kind of research could you put um brainwave measuring hair <laughs> people and just let them live their lives or something and measure their difference in brainwaves depending on where they are in their house <laughs> well you could do but there's the thing uh, people people love this idea of you know measuring brainwaves brainwaves of what you know yeah true i suppose that's a difference between psychology and neurology isn't it well yeah but it's um I don't know. For, I think you have to be careful with these kinds of measurements. Like, what what are we collecting these data for? You know, like uh, the brain will show activity no matter what it's doing, but you know, what kind of activity are you looking for? So, for example, you could look at um, was it alpha waves or wakeful relaxation? So you could look for increased levels of those. But I, I maybe this is just the kind of researcher that I am. But I'm a bit skeptical about the the perceived sexiness of all of these imaging technologies and uh, you know like, okay brain activity that's cool 
<laughs> but where's where's the words? Where's the lived experience? Like you said earlier you like the stories. Don't you? I do. So is it, I do. Is it more about the forms and hearing people sort of recounting of their lives? Yes. Their, their yeah, that's that's what I want. You know, I I don't know, and it's just. <sighs> I don't know, hard to say. I, I think the best kind of research is when you can unite those different types of methodologies. So you could have a study, and actually some, some of my colleagues ran a study like this, looking at um, people's subjective and objective reactions to favorite places and also favorite objects. So trying to find differences between those two kinds of stimuli where there was this favoriteness across both of them, but some were objects and some were places. Uh, and they, they looked at brain activity, but also subjective responses. So how people self-reported that, that they felt. Uh, I can't remember offhand the contents of that paper, but it was nice because it, it told different sides of the same story using different methods to try and achieve some more accurate picture of what was going on. And so I think that's, that's a nice example of bringing different methodologies together. Mm. And going back to the sort of the, the external environment side, um, am I right? I think you've done quite a lot of work on birdsong and yeah. sort of the acoustic uh, environment and, and sort of the well-being aspects of that. Can you sort of explain what it was you were researching and, and sort of what relevance it has, especially in architecture? Yes. So this was my PhD work. So started that 10 years ago, something like that. Um, and actually, it, it came about because I saw an opinion piece in The, the Guardian back in 2010. And at that time, I, I knew I wanted to do a PhD in this area of restorative environments. But I was just looking for the hook, really, to get funding and make it an interesting project. And this opinion piece was written by an ecologist who worked for the National Trust at the time, Pete Brash. And he was suggesting that people listening to or listening to the sounds of birds, especially in the winter, could help people to feel better in the winter blues and that kind of thing. And I, I read this and it had so many links with this area of environmental psychology that I love. But at that time, almost no one was looking at nature sounds and certainly not specific sounds like birds. So I read this. I was like, wow, this is a really cool project idea. And maybe we could work together. And so I, I wrote him an email. I think it was a few days before Christmas or something like that. And he, he responded. And we got a funding proposal together. I got some funding. And I actually did my PhD here at Surrey. So after my PhD, I went away for a few years to do other work. But uh, the the PhD, it kind of took on a life of its own. So I set out and said, oh, I'm going to you know, experimentally study the effects of birdsong on people and all these physiological measures like we were talking about, right? And then I started off with some interviews, so asking people about their experiences of nature, if they were stressed and needed to recover, and then drilling down into these different sensory aspects of it. And as soon as I started that study, I could kind of see that this PhD was going to go in a different direction because it was less interesting for me, a kind of, oh yeah, I find that restorative or this relaxes me, and more about the nuances. So some people who said, no, I don't like bird sounds or no, I only like these kinds and these birds are nasty or stressful to listen to. So I realized there was a lot more subtlety there in how people perceive sounds based on the way they sound, the way they are structured, uh, what they mean, kind of the stories and associations and, and meanings that are attached to the sounds themselves. And so the rest of the PhD was drilling further into that, building models of how people respond to sounds based on their different properties. And actually very little in the way of, you know, experimental work where I got people in a lab or anything like that. It was a lot more about understanding the variation in perceptions and experience. 
And I guess that that really has driven my research philosophy in that I'm interested in these individual differences a lot more these days and in understanding the the diversity of experience. Even if people are listening to the same sound, they can have wildly different experiences based on what they construct of that sound in their in their head and their imagination. Um, and I guess the well, you asked about the implication for architecture. Uh, I guess it's it's made me a lot more integrated with kind of the soundscape world. And doing that work, I always felt like a little bit of an imposter. Well, you feel that anyway, doing a PhD. But I felt like one because I was in the world of acoustics, but I was not a trained acoustics person at all. So all my methods were a little bit, you know, off the back of a van. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I was accepted into this soundscape kind of arena. Um, and it made me realize the importance of good sound design in an environment. And I'm by no means an expert in, in that area, but so much of the work in, in that field and in sound perception is about negative sound appraisal, so noise and sounds that people don't want to hear. Mm. And there had been almost no work on pleasant sounds and introducing those sounds into the built environment or maximizing people's exposure to them. So from kind of an environmental design perspective, it was really positive to me to see after that work, more interest in designing these positive acoustic experiences. And I think that has a lot to offer architects as well, you know, not just trying to remove the bad stuff, but also trying to encourage the good stuff. Yeah, I could probably advise the people who put the music in the shopping centers and quite well. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's another thing. It, I've had this kind of other life as a consumer psychologist doing, I mean, that's more of my kind of consultancy work, but now there's a lot more interest in sound branding, uh, the kind of soundscapes that you have in retail or service scape environments as well. And that's something I include in my teaching. And it's probably not something I would have paid too much attention to had I not been doing this body of work on nature sounds. And now you see people injecting nature sounds into airports and service stations and, you know, trying to give a new dimension to the environment, sometimes with varying levels of success, I have to say. Um, like my my supervisor went to a conference one time where she was talking about birdsong in toilets and someone said is this actually what you're working on <laughs> yes um were you were you um i asked you about the difference between real and artificial mm. uh, nature earlier in terms of visual is there a difference there in terms of the acoustic as well in terms of actually hearing real birdsong which by the way if you're in a coastal town and the birds on the seagulls i'm not sure you necessarily have the same opinion mm. um but yeah is there a difference between sort of piped in bird song versus actual bird song yes i i think so i have some data on that in that people people expect to hear nature sounds in a natural setting and obviously it's a bit different when you ask them to rate sounds for the purpose of a research study they understand that it's a artificial context um, but say in a sound installation, like one year I did an um, installation piece at a conference where there were birds playing in the conference room during the break, and I asked people for their, their thoughts on it, and someone said, is there a bird stuck in here? What, what is this? So there, there can be, I think, a certain level of discomfort or unease about hearing sounds that you don't expect to hear in a certain environment. And this links back to, to research on perception of visual environments as well. So 
I think at the beginning I mentioned that if you show people pictures of nature and you add congruent nature sounds, overall they have a more kind of intense and generally positive perception of the whole thing. But if you pair incongruent stimuli, so the picture of nature and the sound of a car or the wrong kind of bird or something like that, people get thrown off. There's something not right with this whole environment. So having congruent stimuli seems very important in order to not upset the people who are in in the place that you're designing and i think there's a bit too much these days of kind of throwing nature into the built environment especially in co-working spaces i visited like it's all very nice that they have you know natural materials and plants and everything and then you're sitting there trying to have a meeting or do work or something and they've got the sounds of the tropical rainforest behind you it's like but i'm trying to have a meeting you know like just think about your users yeah well, i've always i tried to sort of come to a conclusion on this architecturally because you get places like where I used to work uh, the floor below us was one of the WeWork spaces mm-hmm. um, and this is in like a 30 storey concrete tower block in London with a glass completely glass facade on all sides but then also inside the WeWork it's got wood panelling and you've got like fake bricks all the way down and lots of plants all over the place mm-hmm. the, tr- the stools are like little logs and <laughs> Part of me thinks that's absurd and completely um, fake and just horrific in every kind of kitsch kind of way you could think of. Mm. But then I also, the sort of scientific part of me thinks, if that works, is it necessarily a bad thing? Mm. And maybe people are aware that it's fake. Like when you go into a, I don't know, a chain restaurant in a shopping centre or something and it's all decked out in their branding work. And you know it's a concrete frame behind it. You know it's fake. You know it's got air conditioning units everywhere. Mm. But they've decked it out like a, I don't know, a hut from the Polynesian hut or a, what they say, tropical rainforest kind of thing. You suspend your disbelief. Yeah. And is that okay? Like if, if sort of scientifically it does improve people's mm. mood or, or has whatever effect you're trying to create, is there sort of a legitimacy in its fakeness? I think so. I mean, the, the only question I write, I suppose, is taste you know whether you think it's tasteful or not and and people will differ in that because people have different aesthetic opinions right um but i i do think there is a limiting factor in whether or not people believe it enough i think part of the psychological experience of being in nature is that you're having an authentic experience you know you really feel the wind or you really hear the birds and there's this congruency effect again if you're in the middle of I don't know. I grew up in North London, Brent Cross Shopping Centre or something like that. You know, had this sort of water feature in the middle. Like, this is not actually a pond. You know, you, we, we know it's not. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a hurdle that you can't get through. But then you have to ask, are we always looking for meaningful experiences, even in the shopping centre? Maybe it's okay that it just looks like a fake garden. You know. I, Unless it's specifically setting out to have some kind of psychological intervention, when then, yes, you know, clearly this needs to be well designed and to do what it says on the tin. Um, I don't know that there's there's a problem with it. I, I guess I have a bigger issue with the idea of biophilic design in that some people... I think there's a tendency to claim that something is biophilically designed or... Let's get our definition. That's right. defined. Bi- yeah. Biophilia. Mm. Do you mean 
uh, effectively biomimicry, where the, the aesthetic forms are mimic, mimicking all materials, I guess, are mimicking nature? Mm. Or do you mean on a systemic level, where you've got sort of biological systems that are replicated systemically mm. within a building in one way or another? Well, this is getting to the crux of, of my issue. I think. It, I, in an academic sense, biophilic design to me is a more a set of more profound principles, like you're saying. So, that a building uh, generates a sense of connectedness to nature. It operates on a systemic level, so it's not just dropping in a few plants or having wood materials around. And yet, very often, when I see something labelled as biophilic design, it does seem to be a little bit of the kind of surface frippery. Um, and that I think is maybe a bit less fulfilling because it's maybe co-opting this phrase, which has a set of principles behind it. And is also supposed to encourage not just connectedness with nature, but connectedness amongst the community as well. And some of the designs I, I see, and I can't claim to you know look too deeply recently into this, there may be many great examples, um, but the examples that I see are a little bit paint it green and hope for the best Greenwashing. yeah exactly so um and you know there are many many great examples that i showed to my students like maggie's cancer care centers where they're you know inspired by shapes of nature and they're there to offer supportive experiences to the people who use those buildings um have you seen thomas hedwick's one is, which one is that? Ah, that one. Yeah, I know that one. And then there's the the pebble in Scotland, I think. The, yeah. Yeah. Because the last podcast I did was um, with Dame Laura Lee. Ah, uh, excellent. So I, I knew you had had some involvement with that. Yeah, that's excellent. So that's an example that I use when teaching students because to me that seems much more like it encompasses these systemic principles of biophilic design. Mm. Um, but then, you know, if you're not labelling something as such, if I don't know, I'm thinking of airports where you have these sort of fake green chill out areas. And even in, in the university here, we have a space called the the Nest. So it sounds very cosy. Um, and it's for children, not for children, sorry. It's for, it's for students. <laughs> the students are not children. The students are very grown up sure people. Not for the, uh, the professors. Oh, well, well. You should see us after hours. Um, but yeah, so it, it's this chill out space or socializing space for, for students. But you can see it's also designed with a restorative environment in mind. So, you know, wood, green wall, comforting slogans on the walls, this kind of thing. Um, but I mean, it's not labeling itself biophilic design. You can see it's got some inspiration from there. I think, yeah, we just have to be careful with the terminology because otherwise these things start to not meaning, mean anything. Mm. Well, yeah, it's, it, it, I think you're right. There's, there's, as I said, a bit of greenwashing. It's a fashionable mm. thing, isn't it? Mm. Um, I think that the sort of the fakery, I suppose, is part of that. Yeah. Another one that came to mind back to the acoustics was um, watching the rugby in the last couple of weeks. Having, because obviously there's no crowds, you now have the option to turn on or off the crowd noise. Oh! Um, which is, and I've kept it on most of the time, but it's very strange to think that there's like somebody in the acoustics box who's pressing like the cheer button and the, the boo button or whatever it is. That's weird. And so is it just something you hear or do, is it heard on the pitch as well? It's on the broadcast, but you can turn it off. I see. Because obviously there's no mics picking up. Crowd no, noise, no. They're crowd. So they're sort of playing fake crowd noise over the top. That's weird. And how does it look when you see the stands? Are they called? I don't know. I'm yeah, not... so, well, it's, 
you forget that there's no one there. Mm. It's just part of the general hum of the experience. Mm. And like you say, when you don't expect a certain noise, I suppose if you have an absence of noise that you also didn't expect, mm. then it sounds weird because you yeah. turn it off, suddenly it's all really quiet and all you can hear is the players shouting at each other. Yeah, that's weird. Um, I suppose that applies to things like sort of natural noises as well. If you expect to hear something. Yeah. Then that can be unsettling and particularly I mean there are some psychoevolutionary arguments that if the birds are singing, then predators aren't around. I'm a bit skeptical of some of these these explanations, particularly you know, you can't really test that so much. Um but yeah, I, I think there is a an issue with not hearing or not perceiving the, the sensory experiences that you expect from an environment, like with the rugby match. But then also the issue of incongruency, like if you can't see the the fans but you can hear the sound of them. That's also a little bit jarring, but maybe you focus less on that because you're looking at the pitch mm. and what's going on with the actual match. So there are, you know, trying to create this coherent and cohesive image on different different levels. Yeah, and in going back to the architectural side of, of that, how, I guess, other than general sort of rewilding and um, bringing back in more natural spaces, how do you bring more of those positive noises, whether it's birdsong or anything else, into the architectural environment. Gosh, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question because I'm I'm not that interested in endorsing, you know, piped sound in in the built environment, and I, I doubt many architects are either. But maybe it's it's also about landscape architecture as well, making where possible sure that people have access to to outdoor spaces where they can actually have all these sensory experiences of nature. And earlier we were talking about you know inequalities in access to to green space that people have noticed throughout the the pandemic and i think it's not just access to green space per se but high quality green space or outdoor environments and so if architects and designers can consider how people might engage with nature as part of their designs whether that's you know a green roof or a small garden or something like that i think that's probably the best and the most genuine way of increasing these sensory experiences of nature yeah well going back to sort of the cross-disciplinary cross-disciplinary disciplinary, disciplinary <laughs> um disciplinary that's um between psychology and architecture i think from from a sort of architectural and practice standpoint if you had a paper on i don't know the effectiveness of green roofs in improving um, psychological well-being mm. um and i don't know the abstract says we found that blah, 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 there was a general increase in this much and then maybe that's effective and that's more effective than a green wall mm. or more effective than a lawn or less effective than a lawn mm. and having sort of hard data where you can say this thing is better than that thing mm. in improving general well-being and maybe you could even, I don't know, tie that into some kind of regulation or building regulation that almost like you values that you can mm. the, um, uh, transmission of, of uh, heat through walls mm. that you could say you must meet these minimum psychological values of well-being mm. in your building. So no, you can't have a concrete box all around and inside and everywhere because mm. that doesn't meet the sort of psychological minimum. Yeah, and I, I think what you say is very useful and it's about offering from the academic perspective offering recommendations to designers and architects that you can actually do something with because i think we're uh, sometimes what we're testing is maybe not that useful in an applied sense like it'd be very useful for you know okay you know the the lawn is good or better than the roof or the pond or whatever 
So a lot of the things we look at in research are a bit more, I'm not sure generalized is the right word, but um, looking at things maybe not from a design perspective very well, like how do you operationalize this in a design sense? And I think we could we could do more of that in order to give you guys findings that you can take away and, and use in your work rather than having to sit there and interpret and think, okay, now now how do I translate that into what I'm building here? Yeah. Yeah, because if you have a general sense of, oh, these things are generally good, that's very different to saying, like, this product is better than this product. Yeah. You know, specifying a building. Or, yeah, like the, the, the sum total of these things adds up to enough to meet your criteria, whereas this thing doesn't, or something like that. Like mm. offering us as the people who are putting effectively your work into practice mm. in the real world, sort of the info to make immediate choices on that thing, not that thing, mm. and this design, not that design, um, design this that way, not this way, Yeah. in order to sort of take that evidence and put it into the real world. Well, there's clearly a project that, that needs to happen here in terms <laughs> of, you know, figuring out how we can provide good advice to architects, and I'm sure, well, I'm sure there's some money floating around to fund this. This is part of why I wanted to talk to you, because I mm. think it's architects and architecture students need to think a lot more about science generally, mm. environmental psychology is the most relevant Science, yeah. architectural psychology, <laughs> uh, which is most relevant, of course. Um, and I think, yeah, I, mean, it's, I don't know who the obligation is on, but I think everyone would benefit to try and engage with cross-disciplinary. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think there's, there's something we could do. I'll, I'll have a think on that. <laughs> you can go and write some articles for the uh, architectural. Ah, that's not, a, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah I'll well, think on that. a lot more appearing on environmental psychology related matters yeah um, i noticed them specifically they started to appear especially on old people mm. and the evidence around that because there's um i don't know if you know the evidence-based design journal okay yeah i know um, that one i remember their first issue which must have been four or five years ago now was on um the psychology of people in old people's homes moving around mm. and how they need certain like uh, uh uh, route to go all the way around in a loop and way markers and mm. see the next marker and all this kind of thing. Um, and I suppose that's that kind of info is what needs to feed it more. Yeah. So, so I suppose what we're doing. Yes, right. So you, it's, it's about finding, I think, the um, the lines of communication. And you know, I think we're in academia. We're so focused on just publishing journal articles that sometimes the other sources of dissemination. You know, besides conferences where you go to see your buddies mostly, uh, they can get a little lost by the wayside. But it's an important reminder that that you know it shouldn't be like that. We should be thinking: How does this research get out into the wider world? And you know, access to journal articles is still in the main very tied up through subscription models. And if you're outside of the university, that's tough. And you know, there's clearly a long way to go with that. Yeah, I found it incredibly difficult to even just subscribing to a couple of basic journals. That's what's really expensive. Yeah. And you like you can't just read an article or read a paper. Or no. Like that, right? Although if you don't pay for these things, well, I'm on camera. I shouldn't shouldn't say this, but just email the the author, and academics are always delighted to send the PDF to anyone who you know who who wants it. Um, but yeah, I mean, the journal subscription model is, is another really big issue. Mm. Is there a sort of popular magazine of environmental psychology? Uh, gosh, well, the, the society I mentioned, um, IAPS, they have a, a bulletin, um, but I think you need to be a member of the, the association to, to get that. 
Um, there are increasing number of kind of social media platforms, particularly popularized by young, not young, uh, early career researchers. So trying to make environmental psychology more accessible. So maybe Twitter is a good place to look. Um, but yeah, is it kind of a freely available bulletin? I'm not really sure, no. Yeah, I suppose it must be published in just sort of general journals and yeah well yeah because so much of it is is you know the the metrics by which your career is defined how many journal articles do you do you have and therefore people's motivation to to write for a a wider audience is is limited just for the time factor really but you know that's not it's not to say that's okay <laughs> maybe some of your colleagues need to start architectural psychology magazine and just to start publishing your find uh, accessible form there we go. that people like me can look at <laughs> well, I'll get a get a placement student on that as soon as possible <laughs> yeah we never really read anything we're just like looking at pretty pictures okay well that's good to know I'm sure we can come up with some of those <laughs> uh, well it's so the accessibility is actually a sort of serious point from my perspective because mm. if you're like i say reading a paper is difficult mm. so if you're say you're an architecture student and you want to learn more about environmental psychology and apply the research mm. the research and apply it to your own work i suppose mm. what's the best way to go about doing that like how would you recommend people get into that gosh um I mean, as they start with an online search, you'll probably find the same names coming up again and again in a particular field or topic that you're interested in. Um, maybe consider joining the um, uh, Association for People Environmental Studies. So, you know, particularly if you're a student, still it'll be relatively affordable. Um, come to conferences and events. I mean, in this virtual world, it's all still a bit hairy with conferences, but I think there's hopefully when we're able to to do these things again i think there's nothing better than actually you know having a coffee or a drink with someone who's working on this area that you're interested in and saying you know i'm going to go into practice in this field you know what what can i learn how can how can we work together um and then maybe just approach people as well like you know i'm i'm always really excited when people email me and say hey you know i want to want to chat about this that and the other it's like it's great you know it gets me out of my little office well, i'd love to see more sort of guest lectures by people like yourself to architecture school well this would be great i mean we could always put ourselves forward a bit more i suppose academics are a bit shy and, and retiring um but lately i've been running some online events and i've been excited by the number of people working in architecture or architecture allied fields who've emailed me and said oh you know would you like to contribute to teaching or can we we have some crossovers so I guess it's just about finding those links and then and sharing resources um and that's that's something that we can do and that's something that architects can do so we should we should you know reciprocate mm. when's the next one of those conferences ah so oh, um, i am in the international association of people environment studies that they have a conference every two years so the last one was this summer it was supposed to be in canada but it was online so the next one will be in lisbon in 2022 but on the kind of every other year so they alternate there is an environmental psychology conference and so that should be next year in sicily in the autumn i guess everything's still a bit up in the air who knows what are those kind of things are they closed shops or do they no stuff and publish it online um 
Well, they used not to, but of course, in this this virtual world, that's that's becoming very very common now. So I guess you just have to kind of wait and see what the the format is. I always think that about conferences. Mm. Uh, conferences is not everyone can afford to fly around the world. No, it's it's really true, and you know, I'm I'm privileged that you know, at least in in normal times, I have a university that supports this kind of activity. Um, but yeah, you're right. I, I think there's there's something about kind of academic conferences. It's sort of you know a little bit of in-group shop talk. And uh, I remember the first time I went to one, I was you know an infant in my academic career, and I didn't know anybody, and cried in my hotel room alone. <laughs> but then you know you then you find your friends. But I, it's it's tough to network, I think, and increasingly so when we have limited opportunities to do so face to face. But you know, we, we should all email, we should have, have meetings, we should have Zoom chats, we should just make connections because, you know, I, I think it's it's through knowing people that you think, oh, okay, we have communalities here, we should work together on this project or do this lecture together or write a talk or a paper. You have to know the people first. Mm. Uh, so it's about finding that, you know, way to meet people. Yeah, well, I'd love to see more collaboration between uh, your your profession and mine in many, many pieces of work. Excellent. All right, well, thank you very much for your time. Thank it's been you. An conversation. Oh. Hopefully we'll see more of your profession in, in the future. Thank you. It's really nice to talk to you.